Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Happy Tuesday, and welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, and boy, do we have a fantastic show planned for you today. Uh, Steve Kim, the Korean Cosell, and Delano Squires, uh, Professor D, the smartest man on the show, uh, will be here today uh, to help me. Steve Kim's going to help me discuss the NFL and the hiring cycle. Uh, Delano has written a piece about Joe Rogan and black people and the N-word, and so we'll get back into that. Uh, but uh, no Uncle Jimmy today, he's out. Uh, got a little appointment he had to take care of. Uh, so no approval rating today. It's just me, you, Steve Kim, and Delano. Bit of a tighter show uh, today, so I need you uh, to call your friends right now. Uh, tell them to come on over to this Fearless Army. Come on over to this uh, episode of Fearless. It's going to be hot, um, and you know it won't be the normal 90-minute, two-hour show. So let me get the party started by uh, talking about Al Sharpton. He met with Commissioner Roger Goodell today, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. The National Football League met with a group of civil rights leaders, uh, including whoever the latest president of the NAACP is, I think his name is Derek Johnson, uh, but Al Sharpton was the headliner. And so the NFL in seeking solutions to a media controversy, and that's what it is, a media controversy, that there's not enough black coaches, head coaches in the NFL. That is a media-driven controversy. The NFL has always been about, or traditionally been about being a meritocracy, and just the best people getting the job, but uh, now, uh, because of the time we live in, it's about quotas, it's, it's about meeting with people who have no connection to football, no understanding of how uh, the National Football League or what an NFL owner is looking for in leadership in, in football, in the head coaching position. Al Sharpton meeting with Roger Goodell. This is an indication the National Football League is no different from the rest of America. It is suffering from a lack of bold, masculine, ethical leadership. It's led by longtime political grifters, men whose love of the game's financial rewards dwarfs their respect for the traditions and customs that made the league a television juggernaut. Commissioner Roger Goodell is pro football's Let's Go Brandon inspiration. And his executive vice president, Troy Vincent, is the sloppy seconds the NFL Players Association discarded more than a decade ago. Goodell and Vincent are paid as handsomely as the game's top players. Their primary responsibility is to protect the shield, the once pristine brand that legendary NFL Commissioner Pete Rozelle cultivated in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. What Goodell and Vincent have done in the past decade is cover their asses, protect their salaries, and acquiesce to every demand issued by football's left-wing anti-masculinity enemies. 
Early last week, disgruntled former Miami Dolphins coach Brian Flores filed a class action lawsuit against the league and three of its individual teams claiming racial discrimination. His 58-page lawsuit ironically leans heavily on quotes from Troy Vincent that accused the league of racism. Not to be outdone by his vice president, on Saturday, Goodell fired off a memo to ownership chastising his bosses for not hiring enough black coaches. Writing, quote, racism and any form of discrimination is contrary to the NFL's values. We have made significant efforts to promote diversity and adopted numerous policies and programs which have produced positive change in many areas. However, we must acknowledge that particularly with respect to head coaches, the results have been unacceptable. We understand the concerns expressed by Coach Flores and others this week. In his lawsuit, Brian Flores stated the NFL is run much like a slave plantation. The commissioner of the NFL, the man who runs a league and an industry that have produced more black male millionaires than any other American industry, basically co-signed Flores' ridiculous analogy. Roger Goodell should be fired immediately. He's paid more than $50 million a year to defend the league. He can't muster the courage to do it because he lacks the backbone and intellectual heft to recognize and articulate what ESPN, Fox Sports, the New York Times, and big tech social media apps have done to the NFL. Professional football is not remotely run like an antebellum Southern plantation. It's never been that. For a time, the league was the closest thing America had to a true meritocracy, an industry that attempted to reward ability and hard work. The NFL was not perfect, no human invention is but Pete Rozelle's league was better than anything else on the planet. Racial progress was steady and predictable. Football treated black men far more fairly than the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the rest of corporate media. Drunk on and spoiled by the success he inherited, Goodell has spent his 16 years as commissioner chasing the affection and the approval of the league's enemies and well-intentioned critics. A year into his tenure, the media convinced Goodell that the league was overrun by lawless players and that his legacy depended on being the face of player conduct. He appointed himself sheriff and or attorney general of the NFL. It quickly turned into a boondoggle that made the players despise him. From brain injuries to deflate gate to bounty gate to Colin Kaepernick, corporate media dictates where Goodell focuses his energy. He never leads. He always reacts. Diversity, inclusion, and equity, DIE, D-I-E, is the latest media-driven assignment handed to Goodell. DIE is the death of the NFL meritocracy. A league that had a single mission of rewarding the ability and hard work of men is now obsessed with meeting race, gender, and sexuality quotas. It's a madness that leads to chaos, undermines innovation, and produces mediocrity. Diversity, inclusion, and equity is why the Houston Texans fired 66-year-old head coach David Culley after one season and replaced him with his 63-year-old associate head coach, Lovey Smith. Culley and Smith are both black. Cully was hired a year ago at the end of the 2021 coaching cycle when the league needed a black hire to satiate the ESPN talking heads who take their talking points from Troy Vincent. The Texans didn't really want to hire Cully. That's why they fired him after one season. The Texans wanted to hire longtime journeyman quarterback Josh McCown, who is white. It would be an unprecedented move in the NFL. But going all the way back to Bill Russell, it's somewhat commonplace for NBA players to quickly transition to NBA head coach. But you'd think someone like Stephen A. Smith would point that out, but uh, let's listen to uh, ESPN's top paid talking head discuss Josh McCown. But here's what really resonates with me. All of this Lovey Smith noise has come about because noise was being made as you appropriately brought up Michael Irvin, Josh McCown. Ladies and gentlemen, Josh McCown was an NFL player. 
who has never coached on any level in the National right. uh, uh, at all, in any position for the National Football League. Period. Didn't even coach in college. Now, I made noise when Cliff Kingsbury, who never coached in the NFL level, was given the job for the Arizona Cardinals. Okay? Because even though he didn't have success at Texas Tech, you know, bottom line is he was a college football coach. Ladies and gentlemen, Josh McCown is just as much of a candidate as Lovey Smith or anybody else out there. Coach, absolutely high right. High school. That's if the that problem. That ain't an insult to black coaches yeah. everywhere. What the hell is? Right. <laughs> Whatever the case, the Texans coaching search has been a cluster F. Brian Flores was the other finalist. He's not an ideal candidate. He's suing the league and his lawsuit analogizes the NFL to a slave plantation. If I'm running a business, I don't give a high profile job to a candidate who believes I'm a slave owner. I'm weird like that. Yesterday, Flores and his attorneys issued a statement alleging Houston's hire of Lovey Smith proves Flores didn't get the job because of his lawsuit. Well, no shit. Brian Flores' handlers cost him a job. In an effort to score DIE points, the Texans leaked that Flores was a finalist. That leak blocked the box the franchise in. They had hired McCown. ESPN's horde of race baiters led by Stephen A. Smith will say the franchise is racist. That's why the organization turned to Lovey Smith. The Texans replaced Cully with his top assistant. This is how corporations D.I.E. The Texans are following the orders of the NFL's alleged leaders, Goodell and Vincent. Goodell and Vincent take their leadership cues from the LGBTQ chief diversity officers overseeing corporate America's human resources departments. The gatekeepers of employment sound the same and fit a profile. We will, this is from Goodell, we will reevaluate and examine all policies, guidelines, and initiatives relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion, including as they relate to gender. In particular, we recognize the need to understand the lived experiences of diverse members of the NFL family to ensure that everyone has access to opportunity and is treated with respect and dignity. The values that made the NFL great revolved around recognizing and rewarding ability and hard work. Pete Rozelle did not talk about lived experiences and diversity and inclusion and equity. In pursuit of DIE, the NFL has prioritized creating assistant coaching positions for women, particularly LGBTQ women. A true meritocracy in sports has a long-standing history of working quite well for black men. Diversity, inclusion, and equity works for women. The enemies of football, the patriarchy, and masculinity have packaged their DIE strategy as justice for black coaches. That's not the real agenda. Same as Black Lives Matter isn't about protecting black men. It's about disrupting the nuclear family and the patriarchy. Weak men are weak leaders. Their lone concern is protecting their paychecks and their power. Goodell and Vincent are not advocates for the league that employs them. They're public defenders cutting a series of plea deals with the opponents of strong male leadership. We should not be surprised. America has an unprecedented leadership crisis that is accentuated by an absence of morals. The NFL is a reflection of our descent into Babylon. A collection of lyrical pornographers, Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Eminem, and Kendrick Lamar highlight this season's Super Bowl halftime show. In the name of diversity, inclusion, and equity, a gaggle of gangster rappers will wax poetic about bitches, hoes, weed, and killing N-words. Black Twitter and its white allies will celebrate the Jay-Z-produced circus as a sign of racial progress. Meanwhile, away from the noise, buffoonery, and claims of plantation-style oppression, Roger Goodell and Troy Vincent will continue to oversee the create creation of additional coaching opportunities 
for women. Let's go, Roger. Great job. Woo! That's my fire uh, for today. Uh, we're going to uh, bring in the uh, Korean Cosell and talk about uh, my fire and this little round of coaching hires from Lovey Smith uh, to Mike McDaniel uh, to Brian Flores, uh, Korean Cosell. Uh, let's start here, and there's a bunch of places I could start, but I want to start with an easy one. Uh, do you think the Houston Texans are happy with their hire of Lovey Smith? No, because they, they had to go to the token box after what took place the last seven to ten days. The bottom line is, um, unlike this show, they're not fearless. And if they believe Josh McCown is their general in waiting, you promote that guy and, and you live with the consequences. You know, I, I heard the soundbite of Stephen A. Smith, uh, who said that Cliff Kingsbury shouldn't have got the job. Now, look, putting aside how they flamed out late this year, got blown out by the Rams, Cliff Kingsbury has been a very good hire for the Arizona Cardinals. Bottom line is they stuck to their guns. They got the guy they wanted, and they are reaping the benefits. I like Lovey Smith. He's a football guy. He's a football man. Um, I don't necessarily hold that run at the University of Illinois against him. That, that It's almost an impossible job now with the landscape of college football to be all that successful. But you go back to his most successful job. That's two jobs ago. And um, I think Lovey Smith now has gotten the honorary old white guy retread status because this is his third NFL job. That, that almost puts him in that Dan Henning ca uh, category. And that was always one of the lines, uh, Jason, that black coaches never get the second and third chance. Well, well, Lovey sure did. And, and, and good luck to Lovey. But I, I do wonder in three, four years, what if Josh McCown is leading another team to perennial playoff performances and eventually gets to a Super Bowl that's going to be a day that the Houston franchise looked at themselves and said, we should have had some guts. I, I you're, you lost me with the Josh McCown take only because I think he will end up being the head coach of the Houston Texans. He's not going to get a head coaching job. I don't think any place else between now and the next three years. I think he will get to spend some time coaching high school, college level, whatever, and three years from now when they move on from Lovey Smith, the Houston Texans will hire him. I, I, I want to be clear here and say that I think at one time Lovey Smith was a dynamic NFL head coach. I think last year the Houston Texans weren't able to hire and do what they wanted to do. I think they made the last hire of the 2021 hiring cycle, and there was a lot of pressure on an NFL team to hire a black coach. They went out and hired a, a lifelong 40-year career assistant coach in David Culley. Didn't really want to do it. There was no enthusiasm for it. And they fired him after one year when there's no proof mm. that he did a bad job. It's just they were never into the guy, and so uh, they, they were going to let him do this for a year, and then if they continue to fall in love with Josh McCown, they were going to hire Josh McCown. Yeah. Well, this whole little, again, waiting, waiting, waiting to keep. You need to fire early. If you know who you want to hire as your coach, make that move early and do it with a lot of confidence. You get to the end of the cycle, and the next thing you know, ESPN and Al Sharpton, everybody has turned it into the Houston Texans are going to determine whether the NFL is racist or not. And that's how you end up with a 63-year-old coach who was already on your staff of a, of a staff you basically called a failure. That's why you fired David Culley. It, it, it's... I don't want to be, I hope Lovey Smith does a nice job here, but I just don't know if there's been a lot of proof of 63-year-olds yeah. on their fourth, because I'm going to count the Illinois as just a big-time head coaching job. Any job that pays you two, three, four million bucks a year, that's a big-time coaching job. I don't know if a 63-year-old on his fourth 
head coach. I just don't know where the proof of success is in that other than, you know, the argument well, is, well, uh, white retread coaches get these opportunities, <laughs> so black retread coaches should get yeah. it. Well, I don't know if that's a recipe for success. Jason, if the Houston Texans, uh, Texans felt compelled or any type of pressure to go with a coaching candidate that checked boxes, you know a guy that I like and I believe is ready for his next coaching job, and maybe this was an issue because he kind of has a big game on Saturday, I like Radio Raheem Morris. He actually had a little bit of success in Tampa his second year. They won 10 games. I believe in looking back, he was probably a little bit too green and too young to succeed long-term back in 2008, 9, and 10. He's gone through the coaching ranks. He's put in his time. He's an accomplished assistant coach. He's had success. Still right in his coaching prime. He's much younger than Lovey. My view is that you're right. When you're on your third, fourth job at age 60-plus, you're at the very, very tail end of your coaching career. Raheem Morris, to me, seems like he has a lot of life, and he seems to be right into his coaching prime. That's the guy I would have gone with if I'm Houston. I think you're right about Morris being a viable, good candidate, and particularly if you wanted to check the black box. I, I think what the Houston Texans have done two years in a row with David Culley and now uh, Lovey Smith is, hey, these guys are in their 60s. They're from a generation. They're not millennials. Mm -hmm. They're not going to throw down the race card on the franchise and pull what Brian Flores did. What they, what the Texans did and what NFL ownership, man, we got to really be able to trust these guys. And I, I, I know one, what just happened to Steven Ross, who, who the, the whitest, <laughs> blackest NFL owner in the history of the league, and he's getting dumped on by uh, Brian Flores. No NFL owner wants to deal with that. And so Lovey Smith's a very, very safe choice. Uh, good values, shared values, I'm sure, with the ownership. And he's not going to pull this kind of the kind of stunt that Brian Flores did. And, and again, I don't think Raheem Morris would either, but he's young. He is young. And speaking of the Miami Dolphins and the coach that they just hired, uh, <laughs> McMelanated, sort of. Uh, I, 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 it's almost like Stephen Ross <laughs> was taunting everybody. Saying, okay, you want to accuse me of racism? I'm going to hire the lightest skin guy. I really wonder what that British actress, uh, Thandie Newton, thinks of this hire. Uh, it's almost like I wonder if she's going to cry for all the jobs that he's taking for the darker skin coaches that look like his one of his parents. I don't know which one. Uh, but th that, that's, you know, it's, a, it's a very strange phenomenon that I saw on Twitter yesterday, Jason, as I'm perusing uh, my timeline, is that when the news broke of McDaniel being hired by the Dolphins, uh, half of the responses were, well, wait a minute, this guy's black, but he's not really black, black. Well, again, at what point uh, is this going to stop? Is he qualified to coach or not? He, he looks at himself as mixed race. It's never been an issue with him. Uh, but that's why you can't uh, try to appease the mob, because the, the reality is, Jason, there is no appeasing the mob. No, there isn't. You know, th there's a couple things I find fascinating about Meghan Markle. I mean, Mike McDaniel uh, is <laughs> ESPN keeps insisting to say he identifies as multiracial. And, and, and maybe that's something Mike McDaniel is insisting upon behind the scenes. And if he is, hats off to him. I, I really respect it. Instead of, you know, choosing a side, it sounds like Mike McDaniel has gone the same route as Sage Steele, who's proud of her heritage on both sides of her mom and dad equation. And that's what it sounds like. The same for Mike McDaniel. Uh, and that's why, you know, there's not a lot of celebrating of Mike McDaniel. You know, he, he's not Barack Obama even though Obama raised by white people, 
uh, <laughs> abandoned by his black father, but Obama played that race card and everybody, oh, he's the blackest president in the history. He's even blacker than Bill Clinton. Mike McDaniel actually keeps it real and, and doesn't get uh, the credit uh, he deserves for keeping it that kind of real. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna leave Meghan Markle alone and Jason, I wanna move on to, go, I'm sorry, go last, ahead. One last point about McDaniel. I'm glad he didn't pull a Hubert Davis when he got hired at UNC and he made a big point. I just want everyone to know I am proud and I love my white wife. And I'm like, uh, okay, good for you, stay that way. <laughs> You got a big job. Don't let her get yeah. half. Keep yeah. loving her. Okay, it's cheaper to keep her. <laughs> you Good for you, Hubie. Good for you. Okay? Jeez. It's, it's, it's funny you mention that because Lovey Smith also down with the swirl. Uh-oh. And trust me, Uh-oh. that's being talked about in, in all circles that in order to, you know, get these jobs – uh, Brian Flores down with the swirl. It, it, there's, there's a profile that, you know, these head coach And trust me, lovey, I'm not knocking it. I got no problem with it. Uh, hats off to you. I got a, not, a lot of respect for you. Uh, let, me, let me ask you this, Steve. Eric Bieniemy mm. uh, missed out on another hiring cycle. Uh, the greatest assistant coach in the history of the National Football League. Uh, still can't uh, land a job. What should we make of this? I don't know what's going on with Eric Public enemy number one. I'm beginning to think, and I was thinking about this the last time I was on with you discussing Eric, the guy that reminds me of who became the big cause and, and, and like the object lesson. Remember Sherman Lewis, Jason? He was the offensive coordinator during the Packers glory days with Mike Holmgren. And for some reason, he could never get a job. He was a highly thought of coordinator, never got a shot. And invariably, every game, especially during the playoffs, they'd have a shot of Sherman uh, Lewis in the press box, and they'd always bring up, why can't he get a job? Um, this is interesting about Bienemy. I was talking about this uh, via text with one of our producers, Corey. I wonder, do you think Eric Bienemy is just better off staying in Kansas City under the safe cocoon of the coach they have now, Andy Reid, and the once-in-a-generation talent of Patrick Mahomes and just being the coach in waiting for Kansas City instead of venturing out and then having a quarterback who's not nearly as talented as 15? Uh, Steve, we may drug test you uh, <laughs> after this show if you think Clark Hunt is going to turn this team over to Eric Bieniemy. Uh, let me what tell you why pressure? I know that's not going to happen. Look, it ain't happening. Let me let me just tell you, there's a guy named Ryan. Do you know who Ryan Poles is? I've heard of him. Who is Ryan he? Poles? He's the new general manager of the Chicago Bears. Black dude. Played offensive hmm. line at Boston College. Spent his entire career in the Chiefs organization. Uh, he just got the general manager's job this offseason in Chicago. Ryan Poles. Black dude. Uh-oh. Played football at Boston College. Mm-hmm. 15 years or so in the Chiefs organization. Mm-hmm. He gets his general manager's job. Does okay. he go to Chicago and say, we must have Eric Bieniemy. Huh. We must have him. I've worked with him for, so, for seven years under Andy Reid. He's incredible. We must have Eric Bieniemy. He didn't do it. That should be a clue that uh, a black man who worked in the Chiefs organization alongside Eric Bieniemy, he gets that job. He doesn't say, got to have Eric Bieniemy. Now, Lewis Riddick and all the people on ESPN that don't work with Eric Bieniemy, they are convinced he's the greatest assistant coach in the history of football. Now, I- I'm going to give polls and give everybody this out. The Bears just fired a former Andy Reid assistant, Matt Nagy, and so it's hard to repeat that process again. But if there was somebody that was going to do it, it would be Ryan Poles, who, again, just spent all that time with Eric Bieniemy, but doesn't seem to want him as the head coach. Uh, what's the guy, another guy, not as connected to Eric Bieniemy, but the black, the new black GM in the Minnesota Vikings? Mm. Did he okay. hire Eric Bieniemy? 
And so I know all these black racist GMs keep making the same <laughs> racist decision as the other GMs and owners. Uh, they keep passing on Eric B. Enemy. Maybe there's a reason. Well, Jason, this reminds me of one of the phrases and one of the uh, famous lines from Arsenio Hall. Things that make you go, hmm. That's a very hmm. good point. Yeah. So here's my question. <laughs> Does Eric B. Enemy need to have a white wife? I kid, I kid, I kid. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> it's he might it might help his cause. I I got hey, let's let's put a button on the hiring cycle by assessing uh Brian Flores, Brian Malcolm X Flores. Uh he put out a statement that took a dump on Lovey Smith, basically. That, you know, hey, congratulations to Lovey, but that should have been my job, and the only reason why I didn't get that job is because I sued uh, the uh, the National Football League. And, and and what I just want to say, no shit, Brian. This is why you don't sue uh, your employer. This is why you don't accuse the NFL of being a plantation. It doesn't make you an ideal job candidate. Those little two white lawyers you hired have led you into the abyss. Your handlers have talked you into some dumb stuff that has undermined your coaching career. Uh, Brian, hello, get you some handlers that actually have your best interest at heart and not publicity for themselves and some kind of left-wing agenda. You just took a dump on your career and, and now you're sitting, oh, the Texans didn't hire me because I sued the NFL. Well, good. This guy knows two plus two equals four. Congratulations, Brian. Brian Flores is that guy. Uh, I'm going to be, this is another living color skit. You can't be fire marshal Bill and set fire to a building and then apply for the fire department. That, that's essentially what he did. There's, there's never been a person that I know of, and if there is, let me know, that has served a lawsuit to a company and then give them a job application five days later and said, hey, I'll be waiting by the phone. I, I don't get it. it. This thing made me roll my head. Uh, everyone's a victim here because nobody got what they wanted. You know, I could almost understand Brian Flores' lawsuit. Not that I would, but I think it'd be more palatable if he would have actually waited for all the jobs to be filled. And if he felt left out illegally and unjustly, then you can make a case that, hey, let's look into this. But the whole timeline and the, uh, the sequence of events, it, it just doesn't line up correct with me, at least, Jason. Hey, uh, did, I don't think I asked you this, and, and I want to go back to yeah. my fire starter and monologue. And my God, if I've had a brain fart and I've already asked you this question, I'm going to be embarrassed. But uh, do you think Al Sharpton's going to help here? Do you think he's going to fix the problems in the NFL? Is he the, is Al Sharpton the right expert to meet with Roger Goodell and and and, and fix this media made problem? I, I you know during my time of knowing who Al Sharpton was, I I've never actually known him to fix a problem. He's great at grifting. He's the all time griftingest grifter I've ever seen. It's actually an art form the way he does it. And going all the way back to the civil rights cases, I remember back in the, what was the 80s or 90s in New York, there was a high, that was a, um, I forgot the name of the young lady that accused some people of rape. That ended up being a big fraud. You look at the track record, uh, going back to the burning building uh, analogy, he's the guy that goes in with the gas can and, and a flame torch and a, a flamethrower. I don't understand what um, Roger Goodell is doing. I, I mean, Pete Rosell must be rolling over his grave and it has me, uh, pining for the glory days of Paul Tagliabue. I understand Goodell's position of having to make everybody happy. But there's an old saying, Jason, when you try to make everybody happy, you make nobody happy. And there's a fine line between appeasement and complete capitulation. I actually have a candidate to be the commissioner of the NFL hmm. who would do an awesome job and whose name isn't Jason Whitlock. I mean, the, the ideal best candidate for a commissioner in the NFL is me. I'd put all mm. these clowns in their place. 
I, I would I, the, I would go toe to toe with the media every day. They'd write something about me. I'd write something about them. I'd get in the press conference and just annihilate the buffoonery and ignorance of these guys. But if you can't have me, the perfect person to be the commissioner of the NFL is Dana White. Oh, oh, I, I kind of like that because he's good at running monopolies. He's good at giving the proverbial and literal middle finger. And it's his way or the highway. That, that's a very interesting idea. Um, he's very good at running a league. And he understands one thing. Brand and shield and logos before individual players and stars. Now, some certain people aren't going to like that. But if you look at the way the MMA slash UFC is run compared to boxing, boxing is run by a few stars, and it, it is the tail wagging the dog. When it comes to the UFC, even the way they brand their events, it's never the Thrilla in Manila, uh, the Rumble in the Jungle. It's always UFC 270 and 271. It is about their brand and their shield. He would actually be a very good choice. And the reason why I think it would be a good choice is that about 95% of mainstream media would absolutely hate it and detest it, which means to me, it'd be a good choice. If Dana White ever gets that job, I should be his number two. You should be the deputy. Uh, I, you should be the deputy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Whitlock and White, White and Whitlock, <laughs> we would run roughshod over these corporate media clowns and everybody else has got a problem with the NFL. It would be awesome. Uh, Steve, I'm going to let you go. Can I make one uh, last great point? Great job as always. Oh, yes, please go ahead. Yes, by the way, this swag here, high quality stuff. And the last show on Friday, I got Uncle Jimmy's message. There's an American Express traveler's check on his way. Uh, but think about how far we have come, especially on this show since 1992. You got the black guy threatening the Korean over payment of goods. A am I going to buy that or not? Uh, Jay, just let <laughs> Uncle Jimmy know the check is in the mail. <laughs> Hold on. That's coming. If it don't, if it don't come, uh, expect to get looted. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Jimmy don't play about his paper. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Steve. Good job. Hey, I want to tell you about my good friends over at Good Ranchers. I talk about Good Ranchers every day on this show, and it's because I love them, and I want you to love them, and because you should love them, because they're 100% American-based, their meat is sourced, raised, uh, cultivated right here in America. Good Ranchers supports American farmers, American ranchers. Good Ranchers is on board with you. And if you can't muster the courage to get on board with Good Ranchers and a company that's on board with you, and you keep wanting to spend your money with companies that don't support your values, you're the idiot, you're the fool, you're getting exactly what you deserve here in America. If you're tired of seeing companies, global corporations, sell out America and cave to China and, and push to change the American way of life. Keep supporting these companies that don't give a damn about Americans and American farmers and you and our way of thinking. But if you wanna do the right thing, hop on board with Good Ranchers. Go to goodranchers.com backslash fearless or use the promo code fearless at checkout and get $25 off and get free express shipping, head on over to goodranchers.com slash fearless today to have delicious American meals on your table. Order now with the code fearless to get $25 off your box. Now is the perfect time to hop on board with one of our best sponsors and a sponsor I know the owners personally. They support what we believe in. You support them. All right, Professor D, Delano Squires, X. We must exist in a state of man glorious as we are protected by the red, the white, and the blue. 
But remember, the mind is the key. The fearless soldier pledges to place God first and foremost in his everyday endeavors of life. We, the fearless army, are one nation under God, indivisible with freedom and a belief in the American dream. The men bold enough to join our movement comprise what we like to call the new dream team. We are leaders of our families, our churches, and of this nation. We reject the seeds of division that are planted by corporate media misinformation. We affirm that all men are created equal and are endowed with inalienable rights, which are granted by our Heavenly Father. We are bound by honor to accept God's challenge, to take the flag and lead, to cherish, to protect, and to nurture the life of our unborn seed. I am a fearless soldier, so shed no tears for me. I am not a victim. I am the man that God made me to be. Amen. All right, uh, time to hear from the smartest man on the show, uh, Delano Squires. Delano is available to us on Tuesdays. So he missed our Joe Rogan marathon <laughs> yesterday, uh, but he has weighed in with a column of his own about the Joe Rogan controversy. So let's start there, Delano. Uh, tell us about your column. Sure. So, so my column really uses the Joe Rogan controversy, particularly the part of it that's focusing on his use of uh, the N-word, quote unquote, um, as a springboard into a larger conversation. And to me, this is a, a, a deeper conversation about black identity and particularly identity politics on the left, on the black left. Um, my contention is fairly straightforward that no one believes in the superiority of white people more than black Democrats who think that what white people think, say, and do um, is infinitely more important than what black people think, say, and do. So in the column I reference, I say, I say that their worldview is really influenced by twisting of scripture, right? So in, in the Gospel of Matthew, it says that, um, Jesus says that man shall not live by bread and low, but, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. For the black left, they twist that into uh, black people shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of white people. Um, and that's really the way that they operate uh, in both public and private settings. So I, I go on, I quote um, Jamel Hill, I quote Nicole Hannah-Jones and even Hugh Jackson. And, and Hill's thing, and she's a, she's a uh, Spotify mate of, of Joe Rogan, she basically says there's no circumstance under which white people should say the, the N-word, right? Don't quote it, don't sing it in a rap song. Um, Nicole Hannah-Jones says that uh, the use of the N-word from one black person to the next is insignificant and unimportant because black people don't wield power. And I think that that is a lie from the pit of hell because there's no way you can convince me that a white guy singing along to Paris is uh, committing some unforgivable racial sin, but a black guy who has his gun cocked to the side while he's telling somebody, um, you, you're, about to, you're about to die, N-word, right, is not exercising power. There's no power greater than, than that to take another man's life. And the fact that we have an entire genre of music and an organ of culture that has been dedicated to glorifying and commodifying that word for the better part of 30 years um, tells me that these people are lying. Um, so, so I thought it was important to talk about that. I, I would love, and I don't think, logic isn't driving what they're saying or doing, but, but this whole thing of like white people can never use that word, mm. even in the retelling of, 
hey man, what, what if you, you, you get pulled over or the police, uh, you're, you witness a crime and somebody is getting killed and they're shouting, kill that N-word, kill that N-word. Mm. Uh, I, well, I guess what they're saying is, well, they should just say N-word and not tell what actually was being said. But, but th this whole fragility that they assume we all have, it, it is, I think, your point of like, these guys worship white people as God and, and that whatever they say is so impactful, so important to our happiness, our success, that, that it just takes on a monumental importance. And, and it is why, Delano, I, I just, I honestly believe leftists and Democrats are the primary supporters of white supremacy. They and I'm talking about black and white mm -hmm. left-wing Democrats, they are actually the architects and the believers in white supremacy. I think you make an excellent point. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, their, their actions on a daily basis suggest that. I mean, I, I mentioned in, in, in the piece, I talked about you know old song from Tribe Called Quest in the 90s, where they, they talk about the use of the N-word in music and how it's evolved and, and used and sort of flipped as a term of endearment among black people. And obviously you, you're pretty familiar with that, with that um, argument from you know, a lot of black people, not just black Democrats. But when you fast forward into the, into the 2010s, I also referenced a song it's called Hot from a rapper named Bobby Shmurda, where he says the N-word over a dozen times in three minutes. And it's not, he doesn't say it in the sense of, hey, that's my brother over there, or hello, fellow African-American. He's saying it, he's talking about all of the people that him and his friends have shot at or killed. Um, and, I, and I go on to say that Bobby Shmurda was arrested and charged for serious, multiple serious violent crimes um, in, in New York and ended up doing five years out of a seven year prison sentence. So uh, some of those crimes involve shooting at people, right? So to me, art imitates life in hip, in hip hop on a daily basis. Over half of deceased rappers since, let's call it the mid 80s, when, when the genre began, have, have been killed, have died by homicide. And even though black folks are 13% of the population, over 50, we make up 50, over 50% 50 of the homicide victims. So it's one of these things where it's impossible, again, for me to believe that these people see it as insignificant that a person whether it's Bobby Schmurter, you mentioned Snoop Dogg and Dre, these people who, who glorify on a daily basis the murder of black men and the degradation of black women see that as insignificant. But uh, a white person who uses the N-word in the context of telling a story, they see it as something that's, that's world changing. So they, they, they feel like, you know, you talk about black fragility, that they, had a, they need to curl up with a comfort squirrel and they need somebody to hold them and then rub them and tell them that it'll be okay. And I just, that type of weakness, I, I just find revolting, right? But these are the people who are the head of the pack in the black community and, and we need to sit them down permanently. Well, Delano, don't, my opinion is they don't actually believe what they're saying. It's, hmm. not, it's not driven by actual logic, it's driven by strategy, political strategy. That, that race and accusations of racism is the primary tool of the Democratic Party. It's how they hold on to power, it's how they, because again, their message to black people is crystal clear. If you're not a Democrat, you're not black. You're mm -hmm. outside the norm, you're outside the family. Their message to white people is, if you're not a Democrat, you're racist. And so I, I think from the N-word to any of these discussions about race, it's all just strategy. I don't think Jamel Hill, I don't think Hannah Nicole Jones or Nicole Hannah Jones, I don't think they actually believe it other than they know 
it's a great tactic of the political left and it's how they remain in power. So, so on this point, I'm, I'm going to disagree with you, right? I, I think um, on the left, generally speaking, I agree that the left uses race um, as a way to uh, wield and capture and you know retain power. I agree with that. And I mentioned that in the piece, right? So particularly white liberals, they're just using the whole N-word controversy as a pretext, right? Because if they were really serious about this, they would cancel Jimmy Fallon, they would cancel Jimmy Kimmel, who did you know, who used to do a blackface skit of Karl Malone on The Man Show for years, um, they would cancel a bunch of people on the left, even Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, who, I mean, went like literal blackface, you know, like shoe polish blackface in, in multiple pictures. But I, I do think that, that there is something larger at play here that goes down to the very essence of how a lot of black folk, not just the ones in media and academia, but how a lot of black people see um, themselves or see ourselves. And I've said this before on the show early on, um, it, it, I would compare it to, f for them, I, I would use a sort of a, a solar system analogy, right? They are the earth and they relate to white people um, as if they are the sun as if white folks are their source of light and heat, and they have no way of conceiving life outside of them. So that is why every time a, a white person says something that they find even the least bit demeaning, they, they go into, you know, apoplectic shock. And it's one of those things, I, Jason, I don't know if you remember this, a couple of years ago when, um, I think it was the younger Bosa brother, Nick Bosa came into the league and people were unearthing these these tweets about how he didn't like Beyonce and some other, he didn't like the movie Black Panther, insignificant stuff. But it's one of those things where whenever they hear that, there's something in them that's activated that says, we can never be whole unless white people tell us that we are. Because they are one, the ones that created race, they are the ones that created racism, and we don't know any way of seeing ourselves outside of race. So until we feel that they fully see us as human, we can never see ourselves that way. But it's, it's one of those things where the, the dichotomy is obvious to anyone with eyes. You can't tell people, oh, we care about what you say about us and how you view us when you spend all of your time glorifying um, the, the, the destruction and, and the sort of degradation of people who look like you. You can't expect people to treat as priceless that something, uh, something that you yourself treat as worthless. So I, I do think that this part of this is tied up into identity. Um, I think there's a power play there. There's certainly that aspect. And the people who really know how to work these things are, are applying that pressure, you know, with full force. But I, I'm, I'm convinced that a large segment of black folk who, who are not looking to wield power, but this is the same reason, Jason, why they, they always, um, if, if we have this conversation, they'll always bring out, oh, but what about Trump? What, what, what about what Trump said about something? And I'm just like, it's, it's not that Trump's words were insignificant. It's that none of his words move anything in black culture, right? If we say representation matters and kids want to be what they see, what does it mean when a generation of young black boys and young black girls have had their minds bathed for decades in lyrics that say that the only good black uh, person is a, is a, is a dead and the only uh, job for a black woman as, is as a bitch or a hoe, right? So it, it, it's, it's not that other people, what other people say doesn't matter. It's just that that's not what's moving the needle in our community. And we see the results of that playing out on our streets every day. So I want to be clear. Uh, I don't think that, let's say, Jamel Hill wants to wield power. I think the only power she trusts is white power. Mm. A black man can provide sexual pleasure to her and that's it. In terms of, in terms of trusting black people to lead, to provide, to anything, 
They just mm-hmm. don't trust it. And so they are as invested in white liberals. And, and again, it comes to the reason why white liberals hold on to power is because they are convinced that, man, these white liberals, they like me. And mm-hmm. if they're in power, they will give me things. They'll mm-hmm. give me a job whether I'm qualified or not because you know they believe in diversity and they want everything to look right or proper. And so <clears throat> they, for, for them, I think it's a choice between whose power do you trust? Black power, no way. It ain't even on the table. And then it's like, well, do you trust white liberal power or white conservative power? And, and again, there's no faith in themselves or us, it's just, it's like, I go back, I forget, I know there was Massa Reynolds in Roots, and then there was some other prominent Massa, and it's just like they debating which Massa they're gonna give their uh, uh, allegiance to and help hold Hmm. on to power, and it's just like, well, Massa Reynolds, man, he'll play, he lets Fiddler play music we like, and, and they got the best weed, and, and they like Hennessy too, so I'm going with them. And, and the whole thought of taking care of yourself, mm-hmm. uh, working, trusting other black people, doesn't cross their mind. Yeah, you, you hit on something else that um, I would like to touch on, which is the whole notion of being liked. And this, this is extremely strange when people start talking about politics, right? They start talking about, oh, well, you, do you think that such and such likes you? It's like, who cares? I mean, you don't elect people to represent you in state office or in federal office because you think they like you. You elect them because they, you believe that this person will do their job and serve your interests. But that's what I'm saying. A, a big part of this is, 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 you know, how we as black people see ourselves. And that's why that, that, that constant desire to be liked and affirmed is so dangerous because people who are chess players know how to turn that, right, that, that, that hole that hasn't been filled, they know how to use that to, the, to their advantage. I'll, I'll use a different example, Jason. If you, if you meet a young lady and you get her a cup of coffee and she's like, oh my gosh, Jason, that's the sweetest thing any guy's ever done for me, oh my gosh. You know immediately that this woman has never been loved by anybody in her entire life. And you know that even if you do not intend to treat her this way, a real hunter will come along and they'll say, oh, boy, this is easy. I mean, this is talk about a zebra with a hobble leg. This is easy, like shooting fish in a barrel. That's how the, the white liberals treat black folks. Right. As soon as you say to, oh, this person, they love they like me. They. So it's one of these things where you talked about people like Jamel Hill. And Nicole Hannah-Jones is the same way. Every time she talks, for instance, she talks a lot about education. Whenever she talks about an all-black school, it's always in the context of that school being segregated and inferior, right? For them, proximity to whiteness is, is always an affirming force for them. And that's why they, they resent people like us, because we'll say, no, we, you know, pe- black people are just like anybody else. We should take care of our own responsibilities, tend to our own communities, first and foremost, our own families, our own children. And they'll say, no, that's bootstrap mentality. But bootstrap mentality only offends people who think they're dealing with cripples. Because if they think that we can't walk, then the notion of having bootstraps to pull ourselves up by doesn't make sense. And and that's why, as I said, there is that tension there that people don't want to recognize. And that's why they think that come Sunday, when Snoop and Dre are opening up their catalog, Right. And they sound like a defensive coordinator. Rat-a-tat-tat, never hesitate to put a on his back. They think that the white guy who sings along with that at home is the worse offender than the than the black artists who wrote and rapped those lyrics. And, and that tells you everything you need to know about about black Democrats today. Thank you, D. Thank Gotta you, Jason. Go. All right. I think I hear tomorrow. That means I'll see you tomorrow. We want freedom. I just want.